Our scripture reading for this evening comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. Hear the word of our Lord. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. We are pressing forward in our study of Mark this evening, looking at the person and purpose of Jesus. And tonight we reach the turning point in Mark's gospel. Um, Up until now, we've been looking really at the person of Jesus. Uh, We heard the voice of God at Jesus' baptism, where God says, This is my, or He says, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So we've learned that Jesus is God's son. He's fully God, fully man. He's the eternal king. He's the Messiah, the Christ, the promised rescuer and redeemer and deliverer of God's people. Um, Last week in chapter 8, Brad showed us how Peter responds to Jesus' question, who who do the people say that I am and who do you say that I am? They answer, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, but Peter rightly confesses that you are the Messiah. And then we begin this pivot Um, after the announcement from Peter that Jesus really is the Christ, to focus on Jesus' purpose. Um, Immediately, Jesus begins teaching the disciples how he must suffer and die and rise again. And Peter says, you're wrong, Jesus. That's not a good idea. We're not going to do that. You must really be mistaken, Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him. He says, get behind me, Satan. He rejects Peter's assumptions for him. And then we come to our passage for tonight. Um, We're now making our way towards the cross, the whole purpose of Jesus' life and his coming. But first, after six days of this conversation where Jesus talks about his death and resurrection, after he talks about the call to those who will follow him that they must deny themselves and pick up their cross and follow him, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up this mountain for what turns out to be more than just a quiet retreat. Um, Jesus' glory is actually revealed to these three disciples, and it's meant to really strengthen them, to encourage them, to strengthen us and encourage us um, as we head down the mountain, as we're sent back into the darkness of the world and to our own suffering. And so please pray with me, and then we will jump into our text for this evening. Father, we thank you for your love for us. 
we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather for worship. We pray that you would show us Jesus tonight. Uh, Help us to see him, to be transformed by him, to rest in him, to give him ourselves fully. Uh, We pray that you would make yourself clear to us, that we would know you, that we would meet with you, and that we would be transformed by you, and that we would be given faith uh, to follow you. It's in Christ's name we come. Amen. Well, in the 1980 classic film, Superman II, um, Lois Lane thinks she's discovered that Superman really is Clark Kent, or probably to put it more accurately, that Clark Kent really is Superman. You know, she thinks she knows who he is, but he keeps himself hidden from her uh, throughout the beginning part of the movie. She spends the first half of the movie really throwing herself into danger at every turn um, in Clark's presence. And each time he saves her, but he doesn't reveal himself as Superman to her. And so she thinks she must be wrong until they're in a hotel room. And Lois asks Clark, hey, can you bring me my hairbrush? And as Clark is walking over to her, Uh, He trips, and he falls into the fireplace, which is poorly placed in the center of the room. Um, But he falls into the fireplace, and he pretends to be hurt. He grabs his arm, and Lois rushes over to him. And what she realizes is, you're not hurt. You're not burned at all. And it's like the veil is lifted, and she says, you are Superman. And Clark stands up walks away, and he takes his glasses off, which is the best costume ever, and he really reveals himself to be Superman. And from this moment forward in the rest of the movie, everything is different for them. And it's just a a really small, funny, but broken picture of what we see here in our passage tonight. Um, Peter confesses for himself and as a spokesman for the disciples, Jesus, you are the Messiah, Um, They've seen him do great miracles, but they still just don't understand who Jesus is. Then they go up this mountain, and Jesus is transfigured before them. His face, his clothes shine in this bright, dazzling, white-hot light. And the fullness of God's glory in Jesus is revealed to them. It's a foretaste of what um, will be true after the resurrection that they will see in Jesus and what they will see eventually once we're all resurrected and Jesus returns to bring the kingdom once and for all with power. So Peter, James, and John, they see the glory of Jesus and they're terrified. Other gospel writers say they fall on their faces before him. They'd have no idea what's going on here. What Jesus, they have no idea that, that still Jesus has to go to the cross to suffer and die and rise again. They come face to face with the glory of God, and yet they still have a hard time wrapping their minds around who this Jesus is and what he came to do. And so tonight, we're going to try to wrap our minds and our hearts around it, um, around who Jesus is, what he came to do, by asking just three simple questions. Um, first, what do we see in this passage? Second, what do we hear? And lastly, what do we learn? Uh, So first, what do we see in this passage? The first thing we see is the glory of Jesus revealed. 
Verse 1 says, six days um, after, or verse 2 says, six days after Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone, there he was transfigured before them. So this is six days after this conversation, six days after this promise that was made in verse 1. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Six days later, that promise is fulfilled for Peter, James, and John. Um, Jesus is transfigured before them. One commentator says this. He says, Mark's gospel, in Mark's gospel, the kingdom of God and the person of Jesus are so integrally bound together as to be inseparable. So they experience the kingdom of God coming with power and seeing Jesus' glory revealed at his transfiguration. For just a moment, the veil of ordinariness is lifted and they see Jesus And they see Jesus for who he really is. And he's the fullness of God's glory in Jesus' human nature. This isn't a reflection of God's glory in Jesus. It's like it's emanating out of him. The light is coming out. It's like the scene in Lord of the Rings when Gandalf burns white or in uh, Captain Marvel where she explodes with light. That's just a picture of what the disciples are experiencing here with Jesus. Um, God's glory, it's not revealed as it is in Exodus and thunder and lightning and smoke and fire. It's revealed in the face of Jesus. Um, Other uh, gospels, they tell us that his face changed, that it shone like the sun. And then Mark adds this detail. Um, His clothes became dazzling white, um, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. This is to signify uh, to us, to tell us there's no ordinary explanation for what they're experiencing. Um, This is completely supernatural, completely unexpected, and it's crazy. Um, Oftentimes in in Scripture, clothing is a visible expression of that person's status, oftentimes white signifying righteousness. You see this in the angel at the empty tomb in Mark 16. The angel's dressed in a white robe. Uh, We read in Revelation 3 and 7, the righteous are robed in white. And in Daniel 7, we read, The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was, like, was white like wool. Peter, James, and John, in this moment, they are seeing the Ancient of Days in dazzling white clothes before them. They're experiencing the full glory of the God-man. And you know what's amazing about this whole encounter? They're not consumed. They're not dead. You know, Moses is told, you can't see my glory in the book of Exodus or else you'll die. So God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, shows him his backside, and he comes down reflecting God's glory as a, like a glory sunburn. Um, but the disciples, they don't just see Jesus in all of his glory. We've hinted at it earlier. They're seeing a foretaste. They're getting a sneak preview um, of the resurrected people of God. Daniel uh, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3 tell us this. Uh, Daniel 12, 2 and 3 say, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. They are getting 
the, a foretaste, a sneak preview of what God has in store for them, of what God has in store for us as well. If we listen to Jesus, if we follow him, if we trust in him, if we place our faith in him, we're getting this preview of what Jesus will be after his suffering, after his death and resurrection, and what the resurrected people of God are guaranteed when Jesus returns. Well, what else do we see in this passage? We also see Elijah and Moses. Um, I don't know if, like me, I'm sitting there going, how do they know it was Elijah and Moses? They didn't have yearbooks that they were looking through. They didn't have, like, children's Bibles that they were looking at. Um, But we see Elijah and Moses here standing with Jesus on the mountain, and they're talking. So this is significant for a couple of reasons. First, Moses is this great prophet and leader of God's people. Um, He represents the law often in Scripture. He's the great lawgiver to God's people. And Elijah is one of Israel's greatest prophets um, who actually doesn't taste death. He's swept up in the whirlwind and is taken to heaven um, in chariots of fire. Um, he's the one prophesied about that, you know, would prepare the way of, uh, for the day of the Lord, that would turn God's people back to the Lord when the day of the Lord came. He's the appointed restorer of all things. So here you have the law and the prophets representing the totality of Scripture here, um, bearing witness to Jesus. And then second, you know, both Moses and Elijah, they, they both met with God on Mount Sinai. They both heard God's voice and experienced his presence in amazing ways. And, and we're getting it again here. But, but lastly, their presence is forcing the disciples and forcing us to think about the ushering in of the messianic day of the Lord. Um, the day promised when God would return to set all things right, when he would rightly judge the world. Um, so the pressing of Elijah's presence in throughout this whole passage um, really indicates to us that the fulfillment of all things talked about in Scripture, it's arrived. Their presence on the mountain here with Jesus is proclaiming the coming of the end. And then what's the last thing we see? We see in verse 7, um, a cloud appeared and covered them. The cloud in the book of Exodus, it's frequently the symbol of God's presence and God's protection. You have the cloud leading the people um, of Israel in the wilderness in the daytime. The cloud that descends upon the temple in 2 Chronicles 5 and 6, um, the cloud that the Lord has said he would dwell in, it's here on this mountain with Jesus and the disciples. The cloud, it's God's tabernacle. Um, It's the pavilion in which that both reveals and conceals his glory. It's the place that you go to meet with God, but you can't really be near him because his glory will consume you and you'll die. And here it comes, and it rests on Jesus and the disciples. The glory cloud of God, which hasn't been seen in over 600 years, shows up, and we're given this new aspect of the truth of God that that John picks up in the beginning of his gospel. We see here, in the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus himself is the new tabernacle of God's glory. His word, his deed, transcend all past revelation from the law and the prophets. Remember that Jesus came not to abolish scripture, but he came to fulfill it, and that's what we're seeing here. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of scripture, and when that cloud leaves... And all that's left is Jesus. 
Mark is saying to us as Tim Keller helps us where he says Moses is gone, Elijah is gone, and Jesus is the bridge over the gap between God and man. Jesus is able to give us what no one else could deliver. He's the dwelling place of God and is the only way that we come to him. So that's what we see in this passage. But next, what do we hear? Uh, Verse 7 says, And a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Elijah and Moses are talking with Jesus in verse 4. Mark doesn't tell us what they're talking about, uh, but Luke 9.31 does. Luke 9 says, They spoke about his departure, his exodus, uh, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah come down, and you know what's at the center of their conversation? The cross. The cross is at the center of their conversation, the suffering and the death of the Messiah that would inaugurate the restoration of all creation that would, um, by its power, bring many sons to glory and rescue and redeem the people of God by grace through faith. That is what they're talking about. They're talking about the purpose of Jesus in his coming, the suffering that Peter wants to avoid, that he doesn't think is necessary. That's the topic of their conversation. And then the cloud descends. The disciples hear the voice of God from the cloud that says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. God affirms to the disciples what he said to Jesus at his baptism. This is my son. At his baptism, he's speaking to Jesus. You are my son. And here he's speaking to the disciples. This is my son whom I love. God's reminding the disciples, he's reminding Jesus as well of his status before God. He's preparing them for what they're about to endure when they go down the mountain. Um, When they go down the mountain immediately, what we're going to see next week, uh, they encounter the darkness of a demon-possessed boy. But also, he's preparing them for what they're going to encounter with the cross. He's preparing them for what they're going to encounter in their own suffering um, in in picking up their own crosses and following after Jesus. If you remember, uh, James is the first apostle that is martyred. Peter is, church history tells us, is crucified upside down, and John is exiled to the island of Patmos. And so this, this memory, this experience, this mountaintop glory-filled moment with Jesus is meant to encourage them. It's meant to sustain them as they face the darkness around them. Jesus is the unique son of God. He's God in the flesh, and he has all of the approval, all of the pleasure, all of the love of the Father. So why is that important for us to remember? Remember, Jesus is about to go to the cross where he's going to experience the silence of God. He's going to cry out to God, and he is going to be abandoned by his Father in that moment. So if you see what this means, it is so encouraging for us. It means that suffering does not mean that God doesn't love you. That that suffering right now doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Many of you in this room right now on Facebook are are suffering. Um, You're suffering with with sickness, with illness, with broken pipes and destroyed homes, um, with family brokenness and dysfunction, with uh, discouragement and depression and anxiety, with with aging parents, with um, just broken families, whatever it is, what you need to hear tonight is it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. 
Because when you come to Jesus in faith, when you trust him as your Lord and Savior, all that's true about Jesus becomes true about you. You're so united with him that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. Jesus paid for every bit of your sin on the cross. He suffered the eternal weight of God's punishment for your sin, for my sin on the cross. So Paul can write confidently in Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's all been taken out on him. There's none left for you. Your sin has been taken away completely. Your account now says, your cosmic sin account says paid in full. You're not brought to zero where God says now, okay, earn this, do better, try harder. You're given Jesus' account. You're given his righteousness. You're given everything that's his. Philippians 3, 9, Romans 5, 19, they say this. They say that your righteousness comes from and through Jesus. Hebrews 10.10 says, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. If you are Jesus's, he has made you alive. He lives in you, he dwells in you, and he's given you his status as dearly loved child of God, so much so That what God says about Jesus here in this passage, he can say and he does say confidently and boldly and with great love and assurance, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. This is my daughter whom I love, with her I am well pleased. Run back to these passages soak in them, devour them. This is the definitive statement about who you are before the God of the universe if you are trusting in Jesus. You are God's son or daughter, and he loves you, and nothing, nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing can change his mind about you. Nothing can take away his love and his affection for you. Not your failures, not your sin, not your false motives for obedience, not your pride, not what you say, not what anyone else says about you, nothing. Again, Romans 8, Paul says, not trouble or hardship or persecution or famine Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's yours. All of it. That is who you are now. And then God says, listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to everything Jesus has to say, disciples. Listen to everything that he has to say. But remember the context of what just happened, what he's just been talking about with his disciples in chapter 8. He's going to have to suffer and die and rise again. He's reminding the disciples, there's no other way for you to be made right with me. There's no other way to rescue you from your sin and from yourself. Jesus has to go to the cross. The glory that you are getting in this moment It's only a foretaste right now, but the only way it's going to be made possible is through his death and suffering. Glory and resurrection and life come through no other way. So God is saying to them, stop trying to fight it. This is the way of my kingdom. We said it earlier, the way up is down. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to save your life, you must be willing to lose it. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. 
So if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know how to follow him, look at Jesus. Look at the scriptures. Our versions of God, our thoughts about him, unless they're ruled by and they're informed by the Jesus that we come into contact with through the Holy Spirit and God's holy word, unless that is our reality, our versions of him, our thoughts about him, they're insufficient. They're wrong. They're misinformed. So if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God has in store for you, if you want to know what life is supposed to look like, look at the scriptures. A couple years ago, there was an article in the Babylon Bee, which is a funny Christian satire website that pokes fun at Christians uh, in just really the best way possible. Um, the, The title of the article is this, Man Sitting Literally Three Feet Away from Bible Asked God to Speak to Him. The article says this, according to sources, local man Steve Harrison fervently prayed Thursday that the Lord would speak to him and make his will for the man's life clear, all while sitting literally three feet away from God's word as revealed in the Bible. Father God, if you would just speak to me, Father God, Harrison prayed, as God's prophetic word made more sure sat just on the other end of the table at which he was seated. If you would just show me your plan for my life and just reveal your truth to me, Father God, he continued somehow missing the fact that God's truth had already been perfectly revealed to him in the scriptures. I just really need you to speak to me personally, Lord. At publishing time, sources had confirmed that a frustrated Harrison eventually gave up on trying to hear God's words and resigned himself to just reading the Bible instead. (laughs) Sometimes we think that we need to be up on that mountain in order to really have the assurance But what God has given us in Scripture, Peter talks about it in 2 Peter when he recounts this this event in 2 Peter 1. You have what's better than being on that mountain. You have what's better than, than being present at these events because you have the totality of God's revealed word given to you, accessible at any moment. In Jesus, we have the fulfillment of Scripture, and in Scripture, we have the totality of the revealed Word of God. If you want to listen to God, if you want to do what God commands the disciples to do, if you um, want to know what His plan for your life is, turn to His Word. Soak it up. If you want to know what God has for you, it's all here. Um, No, it doesn't answer questions that, that... you know, we ask sometimes, but it answers everything that we need. It is the entire revealed will of God, and it's sufficient for us for knowing who he is and what life is to be about. We need to have our understanding of who Jesus is, what he came to do, um, what his kingdom is about, what it means to follow him, what it means to deny yourself and to, to take up your cross and follow him, what it means to suffer for him. We need to have those things shaped by and informed by him and his word alone. Listen to him. But if we're honest, that's really hard for us because there's a lot of other voices um, in our world, in our own heads that say things differently that we like to listen to. You know, we, we look other places to inform us about what, who God is and what life is like. We look um, at our own broken understanding. We look at our, listen to the own voices in our head. We look at our own significance and importance and what life is supposed to be about um, through our jobs, through our performance, through our, um, the validation that we're getting or not getting from our bosses or teachers, um, from our coworkers, from the love or the lack of it that we're receiving from our spouses or our parents 
or our children or our friends. We listen to our bank accounts. Um, we give science a really high voice. We give governments and policies that they, they create. We give them very high voices. But God says, listen to my son. He's the one you've been waiting for. He's the one that is promised in Deuteronomy chapter 18 when Moses said, a prophet like me will come and God will put his words in his mouth and you must listen to him. Jesus is God come in the flesh and he's the word of God with skin on. Listen to him. You need him. He's the only one that can bring you life and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and security and hope. You know, it might mean that, that you start reading your Bible a little bit more, just a couple minutes a day. Maybe you read a chapter a day or just a few verses. Um, you can do it by yourself. You can do it with, uh, with friends. Uh, it may be helpful for you to download a Bible app on your phone, like the, the Dwell app, and you listen to it while you're driving or while you're walking or exercising. The key is we need to spend time listening to our God taking in, devouring, being defined by, being ruled and shaped and informed by him. So that's what we've seen. That's what we've heard. Now what do we learn? Well, we've already learned that, that we've kind of melded those last two points together. Um, we've already learned that God is for us, that he loves us, that he calls us his children. We've learned that suffering doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. And we've learned that we have to listen to Jesus, to rest in his word and let ourselves be ruled by it. But we also learn uh, from Peter's response here that we're not meant to stay on the mountain. We're called to be sent. Peter is so frightened by this encounter with, with the glory of Jesus on this mountain that he's not stunned speechless. Peter just starts talking. Um, he's looking for something to do and something to say. And Peter you know, might be thinking, oh my gosh, it's so good that we're here, Jesus. You forgot your tent. Like, thank God I'm here. Now I can build a tent for you and Elijah and Moses. Um, Peter still doesn't get it. Peter doesn't understand fully who this Jesus is and what he's about. You know, that's why when they're talking about Elijah on the way down the mountain, Jesus tells them, you know, don't tell anyone about this event until after I'm resurrected. Um, the glory that, you, that they've seen on this mountain will only make sense after the resurrection. Even though Jesus has said plainly, I must suffer, I must die, I must rise again, they still don't understand. They're still thinking, maybe we can get around this whole suffering thing. Maybe it's not that important. That's why Peter wants to stay on the mountain. You know, he's really likely thinking, I like this Jesus. This shiny, kind of scary, but glorified, awesome Jesus, this, this one here that is emanating light from his face and everything about him. I like this Jesus. Let's stay here. Let's stay on this mountain and, and just stay in the glory. Let's stay in the rest. Maybe we don't have to do that whole suffering business. That's why they ask about Elijah. Um, their question really is, at the end of the passage, if, if the end is coming, Jesus, where's Elijah? Like if this end that you're talking about is here, where, where's Elijah? You know, they thought if Elijah was coming to prepare the way for the Lord, um, there's no need for suffering. There's no need for it at all, but Jesus corrects them. He says, Elijah has come. And, and Matthew makes it really clear that we don't miss it, that Elijah is referring to John the Baptist. Elijah has come, but Jesus says, what about Isaiah 53? What about the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? The glory, the rescue, the redemption that you long for, Peter, James, and John, 
Grace Presbyterian Church, it only comes through the suffering, the humiliation, and the death and resurrection of the Messiah. Jesus is, again, helping the disciples, helping us learn that his ways are not our ways, that his plans are not our plans, that his way to glory and triumph only come through defeat and death. But his defeat and death are not the end of the story. His defeat and death on the cross lead to resurrection. It leads to life. It's not just for Jesus, but it's for all who trust in him. So when Peter tries to get them to stay on the mountain and join the glory apart from the suffering of Jesus, we're taught that we're not intended to stay on the mountain. You know, we might experience moments of glory. We might experience moments of God's love and his pleasure and his joy. And we, we might experience them in the here and now. But they're just a foretaste of what's to come when Jesus returns, when he will return and set all things right, when we will actually just stay on that mountain with him in glory. But until Jesus returns, we're called to be sent. We learned that those mountaintops experiences that we have that, um, and seeing the glorified face of Jesus, you know, the, those times of worship and connection with God that you experience at camp or at retreats, or those moments of worship where you really feel God's presence and nearness and his spirit, and those moments of joy and love, they're good, and you should hold on to them, but we're not meant to stay in them forever as we're sent into the brokenness of the world, as you're sent to pick, pick up your cross and follow him, they're meant to encourage you. They're meant to sustain you. They're meant to nourish you so that when you face the darkness, you can remember who this God is. You can remember his love for you. You can remember his favor towards you and his grace towards you. They're meant to remind you that John 16, is true. In this wor- world, you will have trouble Take heart, for I have overcome the world. When you walk into opposition, when you walk into depression and anxiety and suffering, when you're discouraged and beaten down, when it seems like you're lost and you're wandering, God is saying, remember who I am. Listen to me. On this side of the transfiguration, on this side of the cross, we have God's word in totality. We can point back to experiences maybe of when we felt the spirit burning within us, if even only for a moment. They're meant to encourage us. They're meant to sustain us as we encounter the darkness around us. Jesus is saying, I've come to suffer and to die so that you could be mine forever so that you could be my brothers and sisters, so that you could be God's sons and daughters. I've taken all of your sin. I've defeated it on the cross. I'm the place where you will find God. There's no other place you can go, but I'm calling you to listen to me, to follow me, because I'm the only place where you'll find life and hope and security. I'm the only place where you're going to find glory, but it's only gonna come through my death and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you came, that you suffered and died, that you were not deterred in your purpose, Lord Jesus, that you um, fought sin and death and the cross, and you came out victorious. Um, Help us to listen to you. Help us to see you. Help us to hear your word and to trust you and to follow you. We thank you that you are faithful even when we're not. Um, We pray that we would make much of Jesus. 
um, this evening, tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after. Uh, it's in his name we pray. Amen.